Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So uh, I'm excited about the guest that we have today because he's done the full cycle of building, financing and scaling companies and also exiting companies, not once, but several times. So without further ado, Ishwar and the last name Prayash Darshan. I mean, I don't know if I got it right or wrong. You tell me. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Alejandro. Thank you. And how do you say it? It's Ishwar and the last Priyadarshan. Ishwar Priyadarshan. Okay, fantastic. I'm just terrible with names. So, uh, you know, I, I actually have to tell you that people have given also up with pronouncing my first name and last name. They just call me Ali, even my wife. Okay. So, uh, so I know, I know the feeling. So before becoming an entrepreneur yourself, Ishwar, you did your fair share of corporate America. You were first at Adobe and then you were at open market and you did this for eight years. Is that right? Uh, actually, before that was Sun Microsystems, so probably 13 or so years in corporate America. Got it. That's well, right. that's that's quite a bit before taking the leap of faith. So what did you learn during these 13 years? So um, what I wanted to do was to uh, learn my craft, which is uh, building products. So at the end of the day, I live to build and ship. And so I think... Uh, Sun and Adobe and Obermarket all gave me great opportunities to build teams and build great products uh, like Adobe Acrobat, for example, um, and just uh, and work with some amazing people to learn what it's like to be a good, responsible uh, citizen of the technology world from many mentors. Got it. And knowing how comfortable and stable it is to to have your paycheck, why did you decide to to really go at it? And and I believe it was the first the first company was MCube. Is that right? Yes. So in um, 99, 2000, which is around the dot com crash, I started to get very interested in mobile technology. I really thought um, the next I don't know decades would be all about mobile. So that was one insight. And the second was. Uh, I really wanted to, after doing, like you said, many years in the corporate world, I wanted to start with a blank sheet of paper and learn what it's like to build a business from scratch. So both those motivations got me going. 
Um, and um, I'd also built up a pretty good rapport with a bunch of venture capitalists in the Boston area, um, thanks to my sort of corporate work. And so they were receptive to me jumping on, jumping off the corporate wagon and uh, trying my hand at being an entrepreneur. So what was the incubation process or, or how did MCube really come together? It's a great story. So um, General Catalyst, the venture fund, was actually thinking of creating a mobile platform for uh, MVNOs, mobile virtual network operators like Virgin Mobile. So the idea was, could we do the American Express um, mobile device or the ESPN mobile device, or the Disney mobile device, you know, branded mobile services? That's where the original kind of idea perhaps started. And so I joined up to help uh, scope out and understand what the what the idea might look like. Uh, as a consequence of that, I ended up going to London, where O2 had a great service, a, a data service that was somewhat similar. Uh, and then that's where I discovered the power of premium SMS. And, well, and I run back to the United States. Uh, and it was around that time American Idol, et cetera, was launching with mobile voting. And so it was uh, coming together of a couple of trends, one in Europe and one global with uh, SMS voting and the like. Got it. And what was the founding team like? Uh, myself, uh, uh, a guy named Mark Grindeland, who was uh, kind of a young Rubicam uh, agency guy. Um, my colleague, Gerald Hughes, which is a a fellow technologist, uh, the VCs actually from General Catalyst, Michael Shrek and John Simon, also jumped on board. And so we were a pretty hybrid bunch of folks. And then a couple of friends from Open Market also uh, came on uh, as well to, to round out the team. So, wow, that's a, quite a, a bit of people. So so how did you guys manage? And, you know, probably the people that are listening and are wondering too, how did you guys manage all the egos? Um, so that was a good, a, a good question. In fact, uh, we ended up having to look for a CEO because we, uh, the VCs kept feed, giving us feedback that we were talking over each other and we should go find ourselves a leader um, that was not one of us, um, even though we were all doing fine. But they said, listen, you guys seem to be unable. And it, it's one important lesson, which is you got to take your ego and park it somewhere in the parking lot. Uh, Right, uh, and do whatever is needed for the for the business. And so we went and found Jeff Glass, who's a great CEO, um, who, uh, and then he helped kind of really organize and pull us all together. Got it. And what was the process for finding this person? Did you guys all get a line and and understood what was the profile, or or how did that come together? Uh, I think he was uh, seeking his next gig, and so um, he was sort of visiting with the VCs, and then he and I met, and uh, we hit it off almost immediately. Really cool. And what was the uh, business model behind MCube? So at, when it was all said and done, we ended up being um, one of the few providers that could deliver a premium SMS for ringtones or game dating or et cetera, all those kinds of SMS apps. Uh, and we had a rev share with the, with the operators. Um, at one point, we were 40, we, our platform was 40% of singular slash AT&T's data revenue. That's how much traffic was going through our infrastructure. Wow. And you were obviously on the engineering side. So did you experience any type of scaling challenges? Oh, yes. We had um, a lot of sleepless nights because uh, especially things like American Idol or Deal or No Deal, 
uh, it's the SMS is kind of the worst case in that your infrastructure is not used at all, and then it goes crazy during a show or a game. It spikes like you've never seen before, and then it goes back down again. So you really have to um, kind of get ready for the unknown unknown, uh, usually under tremendous pressure. Wow. Wow. So so I, I believe, I mean, we were talking about this. You guys built the business when, at the time, the uh, mobile, I would say, route was kind of like exploding, right? So do you think that yeah. timing was a factor of your guys' success? Absolutely. I think uh, that the timing, uh, especially on the operator uh, wireless carrier side. So uh, one thing that we did right accidentally, which I continue to do, try to do is never be a vendor, always be a partner. Being a revenue share partner for someone that wants to grow a business like the mobile operators wanted to grow the data business, um, they really gave us all the goodies that we wanted to play with. And since we were a peer, strangely, even though we're a tiny company, um, they couldn't, uh, you know, torture us the way they normally torture a vendor. Uh, they needed to be nice to us, uh, which helped us kind of get our act together and operate as an independent entity throughout. Got it. And at what point did you guys decide that it was time to raise some money? Um, so we uh, early on, so about six months into it. So first of all, I first tried to raise money in the teeth of 9-11. So the CTIA, uh, I was actually going to be on the uh, United flight to Los Angeles from Boston and switch to the flight the night before. Uh, because we found a cheaper ticket. Otherwise, I would have been on the morning flight. Um, so that was a terrible time to raise money. And we were all in shock. So uh, so it took us back about six months, nine months or so, uh, as the whole world was kind of reeling from that shock. And then we raised money probably about nine months into it um, from uh, Bain Capital. Uh, and then General Catalyst stepped up as well. Got it. Got it. And, and how much money did you guys raise in total for the business? Uh, over the... Uh, few rounds i think we ended up doing about 25 to 28 million got it got it and you had other people like sigma partners or yeah. Harbor Harbor Best. Best and, yeah yeah so and, and so how spend, you, yeah and how did you how did you uh meet them like what was the process of 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 really like getting i don't know introduced to them or approaching them so the the thing that's the good thing is the boston uh, vc community is pretty is pretty tight um so that's another kind of lesson to learn is seek an investor that sort of is part of our network, if you will. Maybe is the one investor that's a little more daring in thesis, um, because once you show traction, then the clubs that they belong to will want to play as well. So the introductions came from our VC partners. Um, and some of them, you know, Harborvest and Globespan are kind of classic B-round investors. Um, and so there's, there's like this ecosystem that is set up. And so you kind of be, need to be aware of that uh, as you're going in. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because right now we live in a world where, you know, especially in the venture space, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of BS. So I guess when you are, let's say, vetting someone and, and really making sure that that investor is part of a network, like you're saying, like, is there any type of recommendation that you would give to the listeners that we have here listening today? Um, I'd say it's super important to get references uh, on the investor um, uh, from about entrepreneurs uh, that have uh, interacted, even, even if they have not taken money. Um, and the other insight is uh, everything you, there, there's the entrepreneurs 
typically will tell each other um, in this kind of context, especially uh, a pretty accurate story of what the experience is like. And then at that point, you ask questions like, hey, did you, uh, when you're doing a follow-on round, did you talk to them? What would they like? Did they, um, did they have set aside money in the reserve? When they put in Series A, did they set aside money in the reserve for Series B? If they did, then what happened to that reserve is since they did come into the Series B, did they give you an update that they were going to do that before they did it? Right? All of those kinds of things. Because it's, it you know, VCs can, are, it's a little bit of a, by definition, a little bit of a non-transparent uh, field. Uh, so you need to kind of do your homework to extract as much information as you can about the investment philosophy about the investor, as well as are they a team or is it just into each individual VC is just a free agent in this, uh, in this kind of office and they really don't work with each other. Right. That's the other thing to, to figure out. Yeah. And MQB was actually later acquired. So, so what were those terms? So we were um, acquired by VeriSign uh, for $275 million um, in, in cash. So that was a great deal. Uh, there was a little bit of a bake-off with another company. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, so it was a very good exit for, for all concerned. Since we had raised around 28, it was a kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, great, a great multiple exit. Definitely more than a 10x, so I hope that your VC is invited to dinner that night. Oh, yes. You all decide that m was the way to go. Um, so the, the just the sheer scale of what we were having to deal with, right? We literally, 40% of Singular's data revenue means pretty much any business that wanted to do business with AT&T on the SMS data side for like a branded experience was coming through us. And we physically, at 120 people, we're literally physically unable, you know, we were pushing the limits of our own personal lives, if you will, to uh, uh, handle the demand. And so we started to think, what can we do to, uh, you know, who's got a great infrastructure that we can become part of uh, that is also kind of a, interested in our space? And that's how Verisign had a, uh, a strong desire to play in the space at that time. And so they were a natural uh, acquirer. Got it. Got it. And and did you guys like hire a bank or something like this, or it was just like how 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 did that happen? So yeah, through the VC there was a bank involved, um, but most of the negotiation was done by one of uh, my partners, Rob Orkel, who is an, a master at. Uh, that's the other thing is, in the last you know, find that person in your circle that is uh, the king of the the king or queen of the transaction, someone who's going to dispassionately make sure the plane lands. And everyone is taken care of. Uh, banker doesn't necessarily do that. They'll find a great deal, but they won't make sure that, you know, when you join the company, the RSUs are going to be right, the health plan, all that stuff. So Rob did a masterful job of making sure that everyone was taken care of, uh, facilities, everything. Um, and so, so it's a little bit of a bank, but I'd say a lot more is making sure in the team you have someone who's got that skill set. For sure. So, uh, so Ishwar, what did you learn from this experience? Um, so what I learned was, um, we get out when you have that instinct that you have not, um, that you've hit the wall, it's a good time. Don't try to fool yourself that you can figure it all out for yourself. Um, the counter, uh, example is once we joined VeriSign, we realized that they bought three other companies that looked almost exactly like us. Uh, 
And so it was very confusing. And within six months, I was out of there because it was pretty clear that Verisign didn't know what to do with the four assets that they acquired that looked almost the same. Right. right. So you have to be aware of what, what you're getting into. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you go to start your next thing. So you didn't have enough with one battle. So you wanted another one. Yeah. So yes, how exactly. did you, how did, how did this uh, Quattro wireless uh, happen? What was the process? So the process was, uh, we were noticing, the other thing we were noticing at MQ was uh, people don't like to pay for content. And so maybe the premium SMS business, which is, it shows up on your phone bill, didn't have a long to live in the world, which is kind of true. Um, and so we started to look at advertising models for mobile content. And we were hearing from NBC and kind of the big content providers that they were not comfortable with this idea of, of uh, people paying for their content, and they would rather go back to the traditional uh, advertising model for television and web. And so uh, it was a natural evolution from uh, MQ to Quattro. Uh, and Quattro, we thought, originally was a mobile ad platform for the carriers themselves, for their home deck. I, I don't know if anybody remembers the home deck. Now everyone has an iPhone and no one takes to go to AT&T's homepage, but on your flip phone device, you had this home deck of content. And so we thought advertising would be one way they would use to pay for that content. Um, that's where we began. And within, I think, a few weeks, we we pivoted hard away from that to uh, kind of helping brands, uh, once again, do advertising on the mobile channel. Got it. And and how many, how many co-founders did you have here? Uh, three. So uh, myself, uh, Andy Miller, and Lars Albright, teamed up to do this. And then a fourth uh, guy, Ravi Chitari, was our first employee. Wow. So so was now this time around like a little bit easier having, because I think four co-founders is probably the limit, you know, and, and yeah. a good number. So yep. did you guys feel comfortable or did you experience some of the um, uh, hurdles that you had in MCube? Uh, no, this was a lot easier because the nice thing is that we had a great dynamic and that Andy and I could convince each other of anything. Lars is very good at um, sort of show me, prove it to me. And Ravi will just is, and Ravi still works with me. Ravi can execute instantly almost on any, on anything. So we, if we had a, we had a very, every 24 hours, that was our rule. Decide in 24 hours. You got a problem, figure it out, 24 hours, decide, move on. Don't, don't let it linger past that, that, that time frame. I love it. I love it. And what was the business model? Just so that folks that are listening understand, what was the business model of Quattro Wireless? So we, we went to interesting. So typically in an ad tech platform, you do a revenue share on the, on the ad serving. Um, so if you serve a banner ad, the uh, ad tech platform gets a revenue share. So we had that sort of classic model. Um, the other thing that we did, which was unusual, is early on is that we had some technology. We built some technology that made it easy for brands like NFL and NBA to create mobile sites on which to run their ads. So we actually almost for a brief period there had uh, kind of exclusive uh, access to those uh, properties to sell ads. We said, we'll build you the mobile experience for free in exchange for uh, exclusive uh, uh, ad serving rights, which really helped us uh, capture early market share for some, from some amazing um, content brands. Got it. Got it. And, and how long did it take until you guys raised your, your first round? So thanks to our MCube success, um, Highland Capital basically wrote us a check up front uh, for $6 million. And so we were, we were off and running with, with a check, and um, it really helps to have been a one-time success. Um, and so 
the fundraising was not the, but the, the cool part of MQ, which, which, which was a lot of fun was within three months, we were live uh, with NBA and NFL and playboy.com uh, as an early client, oddly enough. Uh, so, and Univision as well. So we had like four marquee clients for publishers that any ad platform would kill for uh, up and running within four months. Got it. So obviously I guess uh, this time around probably is, it was a little bit easier to raise money. Right. Raise money. And also we were like ball players that were a lot faster in how we, you know, do the cutoff through or whatever the equivalent is in, in, in being an entrepreneur. Got like it. I mean, I, a lot better. I have friends and, and maybe you can confirm this is where I have friends that, you know, also have and and also people that I know that have gone to do a really good exit. So, for example, your last company, you know, over 10x to investors. So really nice outcome. So when you do your second time around, people are literally throwing money at you. Is that something yeah. that you experienced too? Yes. So it happened uh, the third time as well. And it's you have to be now older and wiser. I think I, I would counsel, even if you get the money, you know, <laughs> park two-thirds of it somewhere in an interest-bearing account and almost work with a smaller budget. Uh, in, if you will, and why why would you what what why do you advise that? I think scarcity is the best motivator uh, to make decisions quickly, to really really focus on one thing. Uh, it it just forces the issue. Like you know, you just have no you have no luxury of hiring another five people to chase some other idea or to take your time or like force the issue in terms of revenue and uh, focus. Got it. Got it. So how much did the uh, company raise in total? Again, I think around 28. Um, so, yeah, that seems to be my kind of magic number for at least in the first two companies. <laughs> nice, nice. And, and the M&A process. So how does the M&A process uh, come about? So it is a um, it is. It is sort of like um, an Indian arranged marriage. <laughs> you go, you sort of look for other families who are interested. Right. Uh, and, and it works in both directions, right? Uh, so Verisign was was uh, seeking assets. Um, and there were other companies seeking assets. So uh, as well as uh, we, uh, you know, through our VC network, uh a little bit through the banks, but mostly to the VC network could put out feelers and see what, where things were at. And uh, in the case of Quattro, um, Apple was interested. Yahoo was interested. Um, so there was a few bigger players who obviously wanted to get into the mobile uh, ad serving space. And so um, you have to, the, the interesting thing that I, I would say is you kind of need to get aggressive in terms of building relationships, by which I mean, um, in the case of Quattro, we actually went off, came to the West, we were Boston-based, but we came to the West Coast to try and acquire a small player um, in our space. And uh, the acquisition didn't happen. And in fact, Yahoo, we had talked to a few times, and that acquisition didn't happen. But the net result of all that is everyone sort of got to know us as these crazy nice guys from Boston that really everyone should talk to, uh, which really helped us because Apple, by the time they came around, said, listen, we've talked to a few people who seem to think very highly of you. Uh, and so you kind of need to get into play in traffic a little bit 
even if it doesn't go anywhere and it's very frustrating when things don't go anywhere i know this uh deep down in my heart but you kind of need to do it right right so so for example like i i believe you were mentioning that in this case and then also in in your previous company in mcube you used investment bankers in both transactions how yeah. in 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 your experience how did having an investment banker help uh not that much okay yeah, so, what, so what, why 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 yeah. would you say that was the case um i think investment bankers are great when there is a um when the space is, it's kind of timing in the space, right? There's when the space we were, I think both MCube and Quattro, we were a reasonably early acquisition in the space. So the system has not figured out how to package you. So investment bankers are good at packaging you. Uh, in the case of Bot Central, my last one, we were late in the space, and so the investment bankers were just tired of, you know, pitching chatbot companies to bigger companies. Yeah. So you kind of need to find it in the in the in the meat of the curve if you will uh then that's when they're great early or late the entrepreneur bears the burden of uh doing doing the legwork got it got it so at what the you know i believe the the um the transaction ended up happening with apple and yep. and what i mean you were talking about there being a competitive process talks with yahoo so why why did you like did you ended up having like a bunch of offers and then you were like okay we're going with apple or or just like make us like be part of that room where you guys made the decision of going with apple taking that loi great so uh what happened there was we met with apple in the summer um of 2009 with scott forstall who ran ios um they talked to us scott canceled the rest of his meetings for the afternoon we had a great conversation and then apple went completely dark and so come october we learned a good lesson which is to reach back out to our sponsor with an apple um uh a guy named chad richard who's now the um, head of corp dev at yelp an amazing guy by the way um and uh so we said chad what's up where why do you guys go dark and he said well uh steve doesn't think you guys are going to move and we i said well steve never asked us if we're going to move um and so the next meeting was with steve steve jobs himself nice. and so we had a five-hour most astonishing lifetime experience with steve jobs he just come back from his illness um and uh that just it blew our minds the whole experience because it, it did, it, we talked about everything and anything, and it was very emotional and very stressful, all at the same time. Um, and uh, and then I think it was uh, another company uh, in the in the horse race. Um, and then, funnily enough, our VC Bob Davis from Highland was adamant. So Apple put out this price two seventy five million, uh, actually two eighty nine total, um, and Bob was convinced that we were going to do. We, we should stay together as a team because we were going to even go public in his mind. Because he said, I've never seen a team as, you know, uh, talented and efficient as you guys. And so the conference call, I basically said to Bob, Bob, ever since I was, I don't know, 15 years old or whatever it is, if you told me Steve Jobs wanted to buy my company, I would just walk across, you know, from Bangalore, India, all the way to Cupertino if I had to. This is this is what is happening to us right now. We're getting a direct offer from Steve Jobs. We are going to do it. 
this is a, a lifetime kind of thing. This is admittedly not necessarily a business decision, even though it's a great business decision. Uh, we, we just have to do it because it's a very, uh, for our lives, for emotion and all that. And uh, so that's how we ended up deciding to do it. Wow. Wow. And what was it uh, like to, to negotiate against Steve Jobs? Um, it was it was less of a negotiation. He stated he put down a price. Um, he said uh, he he wanted to close the deal by the end of the year. So it was like uh, late November. So he said, I go quickly and we can get this done. And, you know, it'll be cash. And by the end of the year, um, he was very explicit about that. Uh, there was no room to really move around in terms of money. Uh, a lot more of it was him uh, learning about us as people, whether we'd fit into Apple, uh, learning about advertising from us, um, and, and just lear us learning about his standards in terms of kind of user experience and the Apple culture and the like. Um, so it was... A and I guess from from those conversations and, and getting this deal done, I mean, it's is there anything that you specifically learned from Steve Jobs in, in, in doing the deal-making? Um, I'd say the CEO, I, I love the fact that he personally put his stamp on the sort of the deal terms. Um, and the, it's like, it, it, it's, it's, it's so like as an acquirer, now I believe the CEO needs to be extremely involved in that kind of, where does this fit into that product? roadmap and uh, how do I think about this team and the deal structure? Um, it's a very personal decision, right? For you as the entrepreneur, it's a very personal decision. I think the other thing you, so you should look for is, is the team on the other side treating it as a personal decision, which almost always means the CEO needs to feel, needs to be personally involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how many employees did you have? Because we're talking about people. How many employees did you have at the time of the transaction closing? Uh, uh, 120. So, uh, and so 40 of us, 50 of us in Boston, 70 in New York, uh, doing, uh, the ad sales and service side, 40 of us moved to, uh, California. Got it. And you mentioned, that, you mentioned that this was a cash deal as well, right? Yes. And it was 200 and you mentioned 70, two, two, 289 with you. If you take the remaining cash that we had in the bank. 275 plus 14. Yeah. I mean, definitely you're like M cube and then Quattro. I mean, very similar, the, the numbers. So, yeah. uh, yeah, really interesting. That would seem to be my magic number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so you were for uh, quite a bit of time doing the resting and vesting as some people would call it, no, at Apple after the transaction. So how, how was this experience for you working at Apple? So uh, it was a pretty cool experience because there, first Steve said you have to be part of iOS in six months. So we shipped as part of iOS 4. Uh, so Steve actually demoed our ads and WWDC. I sat in the first row and, and he stared at me the whole way, glared at me the whole way, it better work. Um, and so so there was no, no resting. Uh, <laughs> and that was that, that's the other thing is that um, it's you, you pray to be part of the bomb run right away, right? You just right. want to be, it's more than just nice meetings and people saying hello and tweeting you nice. It's like, you want to be part of the show, right? Yeah. That's what we do it for as an entrepreneur. You want to be part of the show. And so we were very much a part of the show. Every, everybody in the company was kind of mobilized. Um, and then it evolved a little bit in that my co-founder left after about a year and then, uh, Steve got very sick. 
And then Steve uh, obviously passed away about a year and a half into it. And so with no co-founder and me um, sort of acting as the acting leader of the business, I actually got to know uh, Eddie Q and the other folks uh, at the senior level uh, 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 pretty well because uh, I was sort of like I had to explain advertising and privacy and all this stuff to 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 the to the team so um so I, apple was an amazing place to work because i got to operate at kind of multiple levels i was doing like apple tv product but at the same time since i had come through this kind of uh, entrepreneur ranks uh and people had a mem- institutional memory of that uh it was a very different type of interaction that i had uh compared to some of the kind of traditional uh employees within apple Got it. And you actually reported to Steve Jobs. So how was uh, that? Was it demanding? Uh, yeah. So every Tuesday we'd have a product. Uh, he would host a product review. I participated in in some of them. My co-founder would participate in uh, some of them as well. So we we but he was um, very personally involved. And what I learned from him was Pixel. Uh, I, I now can look at any presentation, any UI and uh, point out the minute flaws in the, in the visual. Uh, and this is something you learn, like everything, you, even if a line is off a little bit. Um, in fact, I got to design the UI for iTunes radio uh, uh, for iOS. Uh, so it's like a, a skill set that I picked up uh, along the way. And then I did the Apple TV uh, uh, SDK. Um, so it's, it's, it's like it, it, it enters your DNA, if you will, almost, uh, that kind of uh, experience working with someone, a master like that as to what, what they look for and how to think about this stuff. For sure. And, and I, and I believe, I mean, at this time we're talking about Apple really exploding. You were, you were mentioning before, like yeah. having the chance to meet uh, and, and work uh, directly yeah. with some of this. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was like attending the court of Louis the 14th or whatever at the time. Right. Yeah. The, the sun king is in the throne and you're in Versailles. It was, that's what it felt like. It was. Yeah. Gross. I mean, yeah. I mean, from that, the rest is history, you know, a, a trillion dollar a company. No. So were there like some of some pieces perhaps on the structure or regarding talent that you said to yourself, this is something that I'm taking with me for the next business that I start. Yeah. I'd say, um, the, um, the, the the this notion that uh, the the CEO is responsible for there's not necessarily one product manager and that's the CEO but that that mindset the CEO is the product visionary uh, uh, and then um, just the the notion of like breaking down some of the silos between product management and engineering management right um, that you you need to have engineering leadership that has has got great user experience instincts they're not two separate things there's no back-end people and front-end people uh everyone needs to be uh, and you can go on about obsessing over consumer experience but you have to have people that naturally whether they can help it or not just lose their lose it if they feel that the user experience is being compromised and yeah it's, it's not something you waits for a meeting it needs to happen every minute every day Got it. Got it. And talking about titles and and responsibilities, after you left Apple, you went on to to start Tasteful. And this is actually the first time that you go from the engineering role, which is what you were used to, to really the business role. So how was this transition for you? Um, It was uh, it was 
easy at first um, in kind of structuring because I'd, I'd been through the, the the game before in terms of raising money and and, and all of that. Uh, and then I think uh, trying to do a consumer startup as a CEO without having done it before. So we didn't have consumer DNA in our team. So we were, you know, kind of ad tech uh, and quote unquote, you know, even though Apple gave us great consumer experience uh, uh, background, we had not done a consumer startup before. So I'd say uh, I give myself uh, not a not a passing grade on the consumer on the on, on being a consumer startup CEO. Got it. So what was the uh, what was tasteful about, and how did you come up with the concept? So um, my uh, three co-founders, Ravi and John and I, were all at a stage in our lives where thinking about health and fitness and um and we came to the you know john had been one of the early ones to kind of conclude that it's all about food food is an important part of maintaining good health and so we thought what what if we got into the space and try to help people make better food decisions so tasteful was an app that when you're traveling or wherever you were could tell you about restaurants down to the dishes what you should be eating if you have a specific uh, dietary restriction or an allergy, um, and so it was a very uh, it's a it was a very nice app. Uh, I still use the sort of the the version that you know the non-production version because it works throughout the U.S. and it's great. Um, the problem is uh, it's if you're doing a consumer play, you are either are successful in changing you have to define or change uh, consumer behavior. And that is a massive, massive, massive challenge. Got it. So what ended up happening with Tasteful? So about a couple, uh, about 18 months into it, um, you know, 18 months of waking up every day and asking what is going on, uh, I concluded that um, this, I've got money in the bank um, and this ain't going to happen. Well, of course, we could add recipes, we could add this, we could have delivery, we could do whatever, we could become DoorDash, but there's already a DoorDash, like, you know, we could pivot 50 different directions in this current space, or we could step back and ask ourselves, have we built some core IP that could be uh, utilized uh, in another use case? And so we had built a, um, a, a, a coaching interface, a way to converse with Tasteful to get uh, recommendations about health and food. And so that we abstracted away and turned that into uh, a chatbot platform. And that and was that, the birth of became That Bonsai. was bot, bot Central, right? Yeah. Yep. So so bots with a specific purpose, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. So how did you monetize this venture? So uh, that became pretty straightforward once we, so if we first started by doing bots for movie studios, like for like Jason Bourne, um, you know, talk to Jason, the Jason bot, because he's lost his memory uh, and he, he needs to learn what happened in the previous episodes or whatever. So we did a bunch of those types of gigs and got paid, um, you know, 10, 20 K for uh, those types of, uh, it's like one time uh, types of uh, projects. And then we uh, latched onto the customer service use case, which is um, where people want to chat with the company to ask questions about FAQ type questions or product return and those kinds of use cases. And so Bot Central uh, was a player in that space where we could get paid on a per conversational basis, typically. Got it. 
Got it. And you did raise some outside capital here. So how much did you raise? Uh, $9 million. $9 million. And, and what, what was the capital structure? I mean, what, what were the type of profile of people that, that invested? So myself, uh, some friends and family, and then two investors, CRV and Matrix Partners. Got it. Got it. Really cool. Great investors. Great investors. Yeah. And, and you ended up also doing a, an acquisition. So how did this happen? Did you feel like you were, like you were mentioning earlier, like you hit a, a block, a roadblock or yeah, what happened? A roadblock. So this one was uh, the opposite of the first two, where it was, we were uh, running lean and mean, trying to extend the cash as long as we could um, and trying to figure out if, if we would catch fire enough to keep going by ourselves or if we needed to um, be acquired. And so we built a great relationship with LivePerson as a business partner. We had joint customers like Lowe's. Um, and so we uh, we were LivePerson approached and then over a six, nine month period, we went back and forth and it was a uh, not not a, you know, not an amazing acquisition by any means. But at least uh, the good news is that the team is uh, right here, like all around me in, in Mountain View and, and doing great. Got it. Because you're still at the life person, right? Yes. Yeah. Got it. So what's a, what what do you think the future is holding for Ishwar? So um, one thing that I'm doing for live person is actually helping on the on the M&A side. So I've actually switched focus a little bit and helping the live person uh, either source new opportunities or, um, you know, maybe help uh, incubate some new business ideas within the company. So I think in general, um, what I'd like to do is get into a model where I am participating in a, not 10 things, but maybe two or three things where um, I'm supplying some of the lessons learned in terms of being an entrepreneur, but also being able to dive in uh, from the from the product perspective. But to have a not, not just one uh, item in my portfolio, so to speak, but to have a, a few things going on. Got it. And talking about the lessons, if you could go to the past and give yourself advice before launching a business, what would that be, Ishwar? I would say uh, don't raise uh, VC money until you figure out how to grow your business with revenue. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. And, you know, a lot of people get really lost on growth, users, and, and just raising more money because of whatever they read on the press. But but I think that revenue is key and, and also being able to to control their own destiny. No? Yeah, I think that's the, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think um, you you are it's ultimately it's you, right? It's all you, and you're the one who's going to wake up every day, you know, furiously asking, "What do I have to do? What do I have to do?" So, to the extent that you can control every aspect of your destiny, the better. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Ishwar, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Ishwar PR. Um, uh, that's probably the, the simplest way to find me, or you can always uh, find me on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Well, Ishwar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you, Alejandro. This was a great conversation. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.